You're listening to Plants in Place, a four-part ecology and ethnobotany podcast produced by Groundwork. I'm Riley Lopez. Groundwork is a Colorado nonprofit. We offer educational programs in Western Colorado focused on deepening people's relationships with the places they call home. We teach about seed keeping, ecology, the Colorado River, and relocalizing culture. This podcast series is a four-part introduction to a few topics related to ecology and ethnobotany. If you're interested to learn more in a hands-on setting, Groundwork offers courses on human ecologies of Colorado for all ages. The program set up a base camp in national forests of western Colorado, spending days exploring the ecoregion and learning to understand people's relationships with plants. Registration information for upcoming ecology programs is available on Groundwork's website at layinggroundwork.org. There you'll find information on our instructors and dates for upcoming programs ranging in length from a long weekend to a full week. These podcasts are made available without a paywall. In accessing this podcast episode, we ask you to consider a form of exchange. We do accept donations to support our work. And we also encourage you to consider other forms of exchange too. Please share about our work here. Take an action that gives back to the earth, including singing your song or spending time tending the earth. This ethnobotany talk series was designed by Gabe Crawford. Gabe is a naturalist and ethnobotanist working on experimental archaeology projects throughout the Intermountain West, tracking the parallel lives of people and plants by locating semi-wild patches of biscuit roots and other carrot family plants in the tablelands of Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Oregon, and Wyoming. Born and raised in Colorado, Gabe has devoted his life to the pursuit of place-based living. From his studies with many teachers, Gabe has become a renowned teacher on tending semi-wild food plants. He is dedicated to decolonizing modern people's views of the ecosystems they're a part of, bringing traditional foods back into more common use, and breaking down the mental divide between the cultivated and the wild. In this third episode recording, Wild Tending and Ethical Wildcrafting, we look to create meaningful connections with place and healing culture through reciprocal foraging, observing climate change's effects over time as well. In this third recording of the talk series, Wild Tending and Ethical Wildcrafting, We look at the importance of creating meaningful connections with places and healing culture through reciprocal foraging while observing climate change's effects over time. Gabe discusses understanding that we ourselves are part plant and that context is really everything. We are a part of a living, breathing earth. This talk was recorded live from Groundworks Home on our working educational seed farm, which resides on the ancestral homelands of the Nuchu or Ute people. I care a lot about place. Place is a really important um, concept and endeavor in our time because we really live in a decontextualized world and we're kind of in this context in our culture where we have this big buffet of like all of the super spiritual stuff that's taken out of context and all of this and that that's taken out of context that we can like have what we want, discard what we don't, and in the relation and in, in our whole relationship to landscapes and who we are as human beings context is really important and living in an age of decontextualization 
Um, I think one of the most important things we can do when we're getting to know ourselves and relationships to our place, we need to get context, you know, and this is like getting the stories of plants, getting the stories of history. Um, you'll hear me say this over and over again. I think I've said this in every talk, but one of the most important things I think we all have the responsibility to do is to really understand where we come from, the history of our places and how we live in uh, storied landscapes. You know, these landscapes are not static things they are living it's a living person you know and i think that we have this issue with like this objectification of the land and then we objectify each other right you know and i think you know it's like we live in an age where people are like you know mind your pronouns and i'm like mind your pronouns to the landscape too mind your pronouns to the plants you know because like these are these are um plants are elders you know like if you really look at the con like the the whole like history and context of this planet. Humans are a blip, you know, and like this neighborhood that I'm talking about, like we are surrounded by like elders with a deep memory in that we are, we are evolved, co-evolved species um, to plants, you know, like, you know, in our nervous system, like our nerve endings are actually called dendrites, you know, like dendrochronology is a study of, of trees and like, uh, um, core like tree ring core samples and stuff you know so we actually are co-evolved species in the context of this greater story happening where our bodies are filled with millions of receptors to all these various compounds and all of these plants around the world you know we actually are kind of part plant you know and it's really easy to look at plants as like what can what can this do for me or what you know what is this plant good for and it's a real kind of i want to encourage a shift in how we speak about this because language you know like language is a neurological phenomenon you know like we make sense of our worldview through language we uh make sense of ourself in relationship to our place through language and place is a little bit different from land you know like landscape becomes place through stories through meaning that we uh, that we give, that we create, you know, like that's one of the interesting things about our specific humanness is that like our nervous systems and our brains, like we we're storytelling creatures and that's like how we process our lives. That's how we process the world around us. And that's where plate landscapes become more than a landscape, but they become a place, they become a relative, they become an ancestor. Ancestry is not about just like your human relatives. Like ancestry is like, you know, like when you're, when you're, when you're, uh, ancestors are going straight back to the land that birthed you you know your ancestors your human ancestors become that get eaten back you know by life and become new life and we are a part of this massive crazy mother that like devours us and births us simultaneously you know and like we're in this like life death life cycle that's terrifying and absolutely beautiful and we've really stepped out of this because we're terrified of it. But in this, it's kind of weird that this, this, this way that we're terrified of, of like this divine great mother ecosystem that we're a part of is actually connected to this actual ecstatic rapture that we feel when we are in a state of mind outside of discourse of thought where we are actually like, wow, we see our place, like I am a part of this. I, I don't own this, this owns me. And I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be fed back to this, 
you know, like I take life and I eat life and that is the life that becomes me. We are who we eat, you know, like the plants, the animals, like everything we eat literally becomes the cells of our body, you know, and, and then when you really think about that, well, I'm here in this place and I eat a lot of food from this valley, like from this, these, from the West Elks and from the Grand Mesa and you really start to think like, wow, like, I've been eating nothing but service berries and just like getting to taste the essence of the sweetness of this place. And it's like that sweetness is becoming me down to my bones. And when you think of place in this way, it really changes how you see yourself, like your identity, you know? And that's why, that's one of the big things about colonial genocide is that like cultural identity connected to places, connected to foods, connected to plants that have cosmologies that have stories, that have creation stories, that have seasonal ceremonies to like welcome them back and to celebrate and to like honor these original agreements, these instructions that humans were given as, in my opinion, as a, a hyper keystone species, you know, because we have the ability to introduce and eliminate other keystone species. We have a huge responsibility that we're not really taking very seriously. And that's like a big part of, um, what I like to talk about is that like, well, um, what, do, what can we all do within our circle sphere of influence to like actually fulfill this obligation to truth that we have to like our places? Because, um, you know, seven generations ahead is not a woo-woo concept. It's a very real, it's a form of indigenous science spoken in a different language that is real, you know, we're actually paying the consequences for a few generations that didn't think about the world they're handing down, you know? And I, I like to spend a lot of time with kids. I've worked with kids a lot, and it's like something that really has me thinking about, like, I'm not really super satisfied with the world that I've been handed down, you know? And I, and like, what can I do? What can all of us do to make sure that we're doing the best that we can to set the next generations up for success? Because none of this belongs to us. It belongs to them. We're borrowing it and taking care of it so we can give them something good and so on. So context is important. You know, when you're harvesting plants, you know, all these plants have, I, I'm a wannabe ethnobotanist. Like ethnobotany is like really what I love. And it's about the story of plants, you know, the story of plants in a place and how that make, turns it from an ecosystem from like a kind of like dry, objective Western scientific view into a place that's alive, that I'm a part of, that talks to me, that I talk to, a friend, somebody who's going to eat me eventually, and that I'm, you know, excited to give myself back to. And I think that that's a mentality that our culture really needs. It's just like, you know, we're, we're all going to die, everybody. That's the one thing that we were born with. The only guarantee that we have in this life is our death. You know, and that's actually the most beautiful thing. How could death be bad if we were born with that only guarantee? We let life have our way with us. Life having our way with us isn't necessarily a bad thing. So what's so bad with death having its way with us? Because death is life. And it's a beautiful, terrifying, absolutely humbling cycle that is rooted in every single cosmology around the world. Every single intact cosmology has spoken to this reality that like we are a part of something that is eating us and birthing us at the same time and that this really actually has a lot of stuff to teach us about how to live in a good way like how to be a good relative and how to be a good ancestor one day and 
um, today I kind of want to talk about, yeah, there's a little bit of philosophy here, but like how to actually do this, like not to get all heady with it, but like how do you actually get out and do this stuff? Because there's a lot of stuff that you can do. Like, I don't think this is inaccessible to anybody, honestly, whether you're like a soccer mom in suburbia or like whether you're just like living in the bush all the time. Like you could be planting peach pits in the alley with your kids. You know, you could be, I think that um, urban ecology is actually one of the funnest, one of my favorites because of like, there's so much feral food everywhere in towns and that um, towns are a anthropogenic ecosystem. You know, and that we, as humans, we modify our habitat to meet cultural needs. And this is what the concept of a cultural landscape is. You know, the landscape that we see reflects cultural values. And you can really tell a lot about a specific culture and their values by looking at the way they treat the landscape and how they modify the landscape to meet their cultural needs. Like when you're driving through Midwest and Corntown, you can really get an idea of like what the values are in those communities you know in industrial farming communities and all that stuff so this is a uh, it's actually really obvious stuff once you start thinking about it like when I got introduced to these concepts and none of this is original to me I was like wow duh wow so um and we're lifelong students I think a couple of you said that you know this is like uh, I interviewed a ecologist from Australia named Angela Moles on rapid evolution and introduced species uh, last year. And she told me straight up, like people really overestimate what scientists know about the world, especially pertaining to ecology. You know, it's, a, it's big. That's why there's so many sub-disciplines. You know, ecology is complicated. And it me ecology has the same root word as economy, which is the ecos, oikos, which means home. Just, you know, so. And the logos, right, eco-ology is the logos. It's the ology is the logos, which is like the language of, you know. So it's like ecology, you're kind of studying the language of the home. And um, the language of the home happens in action. It happens in movement. It happens in a dance. And I have a bunch of props that I brought in to kind of demonstrate what this actually looks like in action. Um, some, like, wild tending techniques anybody ever heard the concept of wild tending before? You have. What does it sound like? Wild what again? Wild tending. Tending. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't hear the D in there. Yeah. What is tending? What does it mean to tend? Just to, to take care of. To take good care of it. Yeah, to be a part of it, you know? We have an emptiness inside. Like, all of us struggle with it. You know, we're all here today. We all have this whole within us that comes from a deep wound that comes from a lack of belonging, you know? And that lack of belonging comes from a lack of participation. And like, the reason I got into all of this in the first place was because of my own mental health. You know, I've been through the ringer with it and like plants did save my life, really did. And, and they've done studies on this. Like it really does show that like plants and people, like we are kind of like a plant. You know, like our nervous systems have evolved in the context of these greater ecological communities that are plants, you know. So um, we got to we got to we got to take good care of these relatives. So um, crafts, right? Like we need crafts for everything. 
you know, we've lost connection with a lot of these because we have the industrial supply system to give us our daily utensils and containers. But what would happen if we didn't have that? Make huh? We'd make them. We'd make them. And what do you make them from? Weeds, grasses, wood. Wood? Everything around us. Everything around us. And when you're doing that with everything around us, what is everything around us? Is it, this is a big vast ecology that we are a part of and what kind of obligation does that give us to this ecology that actually provides for us in this way makes us have to think quite a bit differently and how plate and being a place-based human when your clothing and food comes from a specific place and when you also depend on clothings and foods and other materials from other places that you have to tend your uh that you have to tend your trade relationships with this was a big part of colonization, y'all, like trade networks. Like no tribe was ever able to provide for themselves specifically from their one bioregion. There were very sophisticated trade networks that were deliberately attacked. And these trade networks had very particular spiritual protocols to uh, upkeeping because of how important it was, you know. And... Um, so then you have this human ecology within this, right? And the, so it's inseparable. So what kind, of, um, what kind of items do you all use on a daily basis that would suck to live without? Clothes. Clothes. Okay. Who else? Spoons. Oh, I love spoons. <laughs> Ah, uh, I'm going to put containers, containers. This is one of my favorites. So I'll, I'll talk about this in a second. What else? <laughs> Spoons are awesome. Fire. Oh, that's, that's, that's a pretty good one too. Fire is a big, big one. The list goes on and on. You get my point. So real quick, little little uh, tangent. I do these solos every year where I'll go off and spend like a week. This year I spent 10 days in Dominguez Canyon Wilderness. And one of my favorite things about doing this is because like I only take like food I harvest and I like do a lot of like harvesting out on the land. And I also like make a bunch of spoons out of the particular woods of that place. You know, the first year I did it, like, I wasn't that good at being by myself alone for long periods of time. And I kind of went crazy and I just carved spoons the whole time. And I was like, one night I had like 20 spoons in front of me and I was like, spoons, I love spoons. But I got to know all these trees so well, you know, their personalities, their grain types, how cooperative they are, like their behaviors, where they like to grow, you know, same thing with fire. When you're making fire, you got to know, like, you know, if, you, if you're making fire without, like, matches, even with matches, you got to know where your good tinder is. You got to know which plants are better. You got to know what's dry where when it's wet. You know, there's a very, when I used to teach kids survival skills, when we teach them fire making, we'd end up teaching them about 20 different trees in the process because, like, it's the perfect way to teach these kids a sense of, their, like, their local ecology. You know, like what trees are good for what kind of friction fire? Where do they, where do you find those trees? What do they like? You know, it's like, where are you going to go find your best friends? 
at, at, you know, he's like, oh, he's at this guy's house. Oh, yeah, he's probably playing video games over there. Oh, yeah, let's go see if we can find him over there. It's like a neighborhood, you know, that you're a part of. You know, you get to know these people as friends. Um, but containers, oh, this is a big one. I think of all of these, if I could choose to be naked or without a container, I would choose to be naked because containers are awesome. <laughs> containers are everything. We're a container, you know? We're like a bag of water. <laughs> and um, one of the coolest examples of containers, I didn't weave this, by the way. I wish I did. I live with some good basket weavers. But um, cultural relationships with containers really do shape whole ecosystems. You know, like baskets, if you look at, like, I don't know if any of you have ever studied, like, the basket traditions of California, but wow, like, some of the best baskets in the world, and the amount of, this is where the dichotomy between hunters and gatherers and agriculture completely fades away. It's a gray area. It's both and it's none. It's landscape modification, but it's done within a whole ecological context where it actually gives back more than it takes. It's a part of an ecosystem. It actually enhances an ecosystem. You know, there's not like a whole ecocide committed just to grow one thing. It's a part of a whole intricate web. And an example of this is like pomo baskets. They use these sedges, the Pomoro tribe in California. There's this type of basket sedge. Who knows what a sedge is? So it's, a, it's like a grass, you like water, you like it wet, and they have these rhizomes, this particular type of sedge. And when, where they would grow, the people would go and pull out every single rock and stick and obstruction in the muck. So those sedges could grow these long straight rhizomes that didn't hit a single thing. So they could just grow and grow and grow and grow. And the amount of sedges that are made to take, that it took to make one basket you know, and they cooked in these baskets. They carried water in these baskets. Like these baskets were not just baskets. They were like, they were like life. It took over a thousand sedge rhizomes to make one basket. I read in that book, Tending the Wild, that it actually took 3,000 sedge rhizomes to make certain baskets. Tight enough to hold water, tight enough to cook in. They're not sealing them with anything. That's just like how tight that they weave these, um, that they weave these baskets. And so when you have this sense of art and story and culture and protocol woven into your daily uh, things that you use for your survival that come from a special place that you have a deeper relationship, you're talking about like a way of life that's kind of inherently spiritual. And in the least woo-woo way, I'm like, it's like it really makes you have to be good like behave a little differently um, because if you don't, then you can't live. And I think we're really in a time right now where like this kind of ecocidal way of life is really biting us in the ass and that we are like, what does it look like to do it different? We need healthy reference points. And I will say in having healthy reference points, we also need um, to be extremely culturally sensitive, you know, we have to be culturally sensitive to genocide and to cultural appropriation and to a lot of stuff, but we also need healthy reference points at the same time. And this is where this conversation becomes delicate. It takes a lot of tactfulness and it also is 
something that um, I really like. One of the speakers at the Herb Conference this past weekend, Sean O'Donohue, he was saying that like when we're looking for to other cultures for examples, we also have to remember that we will never have the full context because we don't know. We weren't there. We don't understand the language. Our English-speaking brains are wired so radically different that the concepts can't even roughly be translated. You know, you'd have to do a lot of mistranslating to even make a dumbed-down version. And this is like the weird thing about cultural bridges, you know, language. Language is huge. So yeah, baskets. Um, has anybody woven with willow? Don't be shy. A little bit. A little bit. What do you need to do that? Branches. Yes. But what kind of branches? What kind of willow branches do you need for weaving? Long, non-branch branches. Yes. What happens when you just let willow grow without modifying their growth habits at all? They get branches. Uh, quick question. What would happen if you had your dead relatives laying all over you? Would you get, you'd get sick. You probably would die. Turns out plants are not that different. You know what I'm saying? So this is why when you are tending your spaces to grow culturally significant plants that you need a lot of to do certain things with, you want to make sure there are very well taken care of so that they can grow very well and that this these tactics actually mo like extend the life by a long time of a lot of these plants and this is where some of these techniques come in who's this that might be willow it is yeah. it's absolutely willow who's this modified willow what did we do to modify it? We pruned it, maybe? Yeah. There's a lot of ways, like, Nate, like the landscape does this. Beavers are excellent at it. Um, floods do this a lot. And we live in a landscape full of augmented river systems that are dammed for flood control that have completely changed the whole plant and biotic communities of a lot of these things. I read that compared to... 200 years ago, the, um, and y'all have seen willow, like willow's everywhere. We think that there's a lot of willow, but apparently compared to like about 200 years ago, the amount of willow we have is like a fraction. Um, willows and cottonwoods like flooding. Their seeds like flooding, you know. Um, when we augment our waterways and, and dam them for flood control, you know, and the water gets very sal salty and salinated, you know, new, new people move in that don't need flooding and that don't mind salty soils and water. Russian olive and tamarisk. They're playing a big role, you know, because we've, we've created that role for them and we ain't taking responsibility for it either. Okay, so who knows three-leaf sumac? Lemonade berry? Raise your hand if you know this plant or this bush. They're a babe. I love them. Um, they have the little, the red berries that are super high in antioxidants. They're really good. Um, it's in the same family as anybody? Poison Ivy. Um, and uh, this is actually, 
this is really cool. This is one of the most culturally significant basketry plants in the West. And they have a long relationship with fire, especially in California. Um, so yeah, see, three leaf sumac. With which one? This one? Uh -huh. Yes, absolutely. Sticks everywhere. This is also three-leaf sumac. There is a part of the road over there that they mow down, and they grow these beautiful, long, straight branches. In California, this is one of the actual most important plants for making cradle boards for babies. Look at that. Like when you're into weaving, this is what you're looking for. This is what you want, long and straight. This is beautiful, um, and they smell amazing. I'm gonna pass. I want to pass these around. Pass them around. Smell them. They're they're amazing. Some people really don't like the smell. If you're super super sensitive to poison ivy, some people have a little bit of reaction to that. I've never never seen it happen. Okay, so Riley wanted me to speak a little bit about. Is there anything specifically? No, actually, I think Beth answered it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Labor or just time intensive with those ones, but seeing this long branch. Yeah, sense. exactly. Because like when you you can't weave baskets with um. Do you see the difference? You can't weave baskets with willow like this. It doesn't work, you know. And when your baskets are supposed to last a long time. Like, if you know how much effort would go into weaving a basket with 3,000 sedge rhizomes, you know, that you can cook in and carry water in and doesn't even, like, leak water? Like, think about how time-intensive that is and how long you want that basket to last. That's not a basket at that point. That's like your kid. You want to take care of your kids. So there's a totally different mentality here in... Here, we can pass the willow around too. There's a totally different mentality in this way of interacting with our place. It makes you see crafts a lot differently, you know? It makes you see like, you know, place-based crafts create meaning, you know? And this is where the place comes in. It's like when you are making your essential life, like goods for living out of a specific place and you put so much work and art into it, that's what art's about, right? It's about creating meaning, you know, because we are a meaning-making organism. And that this is where stories, this is where songs, this is where cultural protocols and um, a different conduct of carrying ourselves in the context of our relations and a greater ecosystem. Um, it makes, you know, that's the thing that I have like a huge thing. Like I love, I love science and, but the thing I really can't get down with, with like Western science is that it's inherently, um, it doesn't see the living world as a living personality full of personalities. You know, I've, uh, this really has turned me into quite a bit of an animist is seeing like, wow, like life is alive. All of these are alive. They have personalities or they're, they're people like us you know and so looping back around to willow it's called coppicing so these are some techniques it's called coppicing that is where you cut something like a bush 
all the way down or like very much down and it will grow straight shoots. When you burn them, it creates the same thing. Um, plants are really cool. They do this thing that we can't do. That'd be really cool if we could do, but in the roots, there's these little nodes that can decide whether they want to be a root or a branch and fire stimulates hormones in these plants that make them become one thing or another, oftentimes branches. This is why fire also, fire is a form of coppicing, especially in places, you know, like I'm still trying to understand the fire ecology of Colorado. There's a lot less to draw from like they're compared to California where there's so much and it's still very practiced, you know, but fire is extremely significant in this. And it does a lot. It's like more than, this is like the human ecology, the human as a ecological species. You know, we use, we become these carriers of the flame and we responsibly burn the land in these places with very intelligently applied timing and severity and all the stuff. And then it helps nurture our culturally significant um, plants. And it has a huge ripple effect on the whole ecology. Salmon in the Northwest really connected to fire water you know like when you are burning understories frequently um plants store water in them you know and that like when you burn they they, they tested this in california too that like <clears throat> certain creeks that were burned frequently the water flowed in those creeks longer because it made the plants it made the bushes slow release the water that they had withheld in them you know, and also when there's not like a total thicket, like just like overwhelming overgrowth everywhere, like that's all taking up a lot of water, you know. So when you, and, and in California, there's this documentary called Tending the Wild. Highly recommend it. It's a free documentary on YouTube. One of them was saying that like the reason we make our cradle boards, which they weave with three leaf sumac, um, like the little like the shade thing on the cradle board, the reason they make it transparent so where you can see through it. That's how we like the forest. We like to be able to see through the forest, to like see the forest and be able to walk through the forest. And like, that's like how we weave that part of our cosmology into our cradle board. So that's the first thing that's imprinting on our children. So we got fire, right? With fire and coppicing, you have a very important thing. Timing. When, and this goes into the next one right here, which kind of ironic because we were talking about like a lot of the blind spots of invasion biology, but this is a very realistic aspect of our existence here when we are trying to nurture culturally significant plants for our life ways, weeding, you know? Think about meadows. Meadows in the Intermountain West are actually very important. Like a lot of culturally significant plants grow in meadows. When you're in California, it's like oak savanna. When you're up in the inland northwest, in the northwest, you have camas prairie. You have, like, um, in the rain spells, you have gary oak meadows. Those were anthropogenic, you know? Like, I was reading that every year the people would come in and they would weed out all the little Douglas firs on the edges of the meadows because those meadows, you know, they start out of the old lake and they get filled in and then they grow and then, like, trees eventually encroach. It's like a, it's a succession. But, you know, if you're... If, if food and medicine plants that you really depend on grow in those meadows, you want to keep them meadows through fire, through weeding. And, and this is a thing, you know, weeding is a very human thing. 
I think what's important, and this is like my bone to pick with invasion biology, it's the attitude with which we weed. It's about how we relate to these weeds. It's okay. A weed is subjective. It's totally subjective. A weed, you know, a native plant that people love one place can be a weed in another place. It's okay, you know. It just depends on the attitude that you do it with. It really matters, you know. Um, and one of my favorites, this is uh, probably one of the funnest ones. Who likes berries? Berries are pretty cool. This is a multi-layered pun here. You'll see. This is a multi-layered technique. Layering. Um, layering. A lot of berries, like I said, you know, plants have these weird, amazing qualities where they can decide to become a root or a branch. If you take a berry bush, it works with huckleberries, it works with currants, works with a lot of different berries. You have your little berry bush. And there's some berries on there. Oh, damn, those berries are good. And you're like, oh, man, I want more of these berries around. I love this berry bush. How can I give back to this berry bush? I'm going to take this berry cane, and I'm going to dig a little thing, and I'm going to bury that cane right there and either put two sticks to stake it or a rock on top of there. That's going to root down just like that and start growing a little berry bush. I can either come back later and cut this out and transplant it somewhere else, or I'm just extending from one mother plant my berry patch. It works with a lot of different berries. Who's picked huckleberries before? Have you ever noticed on huckleberries, there's these, there's these brown growths that grow on the branches. They almost look like a fungus. I was taught, and it works, that those are where they want to be air-rooted from. So you can take those, like, little spots you know it's like a branch and they'll have like this little schmutz on it and you know this weird brown fungus and the among us and you take it and you bury it and you and it becomes its own plant you know and you know up in like the inland northwest and the klamath basin and like this and the cascade mountains like every single year when the klamath would go up and harvest huckleberries they would do a big ceremony and take a huge portion of their first harvest and they would plant it. They would just throw the berries out. And it's pretty wet up there, you know, so they're not going to dry out. And that, like, huckleberry patches were, like, this is where that line between farming and, and hunting and gathering completely fizzles away. My first favorite, though, even more than this, because I'm good at this. Poop. Berries love poop. Poop is, like, the way that fruit and mammals are married it's amazing like they have these sweet simple starches and carbohydrates and sugars that we just love and they also have these seeds that are covered into protective coatings that sometimes needs to be like eaten off by this gut flora that we've evolved you know that eat off this protective flora that then help these seeds germinate i call it poopergation like propagation, but poopergation. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I made this word up. <laughs> I usually don't take credit for stuff, cause, but if there's one thing I can, I'm pretty sure. Very proud of this. And this is where I really like to contradict a lot of modern mentalities about how we should be. Before I get into that, does anybody have any questions? 
Are you going to go back to what timing is? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, you know, honestly, if you just throw stuff at me, like if you want to know something, don't be shy. This is a conversation, too. All right. Um, um, huckleberry, <clears throat> it's like the moldy schmutz that you replant. Yeah, it's like a brown bush, growth. Another uh, berry bushes where you... They don't have that. You can like just bend over raspberry cane, blackberry, black cap. They do it on their own. They, you don't need to do it, but you can. And you can do it more intelligent, not, I mean, I wouldn't say we're more intelligent than plants, but you can do it intelligently to modify, you know, so it's not just a big bramble. You can modify it and you can control it and you can actually like extend the lives of these berry patches. You know, it's actually like a way to so like I said, you know, would you live that long if you had a bunch of your dead relatives laying all over you? No, you wouldn't. Plants don't either. It's real. It's science. Like, they just don't. It's like they get infected, like us. We get infections. Insects get in there, start crawling around, pooping, schmutz all over the place, and they die. <laughs> so you're bending it you, and bury them? And you or? bury them, yeah. So you'll take this cane, and you'll bend it, and then you'll dig up a little spot, and you'll lay that cane down there and you can do it like if this is one cane you can lay whole sections of that cane down and then like either put just a big rock on top of that and some soil and it'll root out yeah. to the mother plant yeah. yes for some amount of time because it's still getting all of its sustenance from that but then it'll clone itself it'll establish roots it could take a year you know you can leave it for a couple years and it'll be a pretty robust plant you can come and cut that and then transplant it this is where like the feral gardening, this is gorilla gardening 101, you know, um, with poopergation. You're just like, you're just like a little seed bazooka out your, out your butt. I feel guilty pooping in the toilet after I've eaten some good seeds. Okay, yeah, so this is, this is, somewhere really good. yeah, so this is, this is my favorite part of this whole thing. I got like, so every year during service berry season, I shit myself a couple times because service berries they run right through you and you have to eat a lot. I'm, I'm like, I'm talking about yeah. like, you're eating a lot of service berries, but service, that's why they're a service, but they're in service to life. They are very generous. They're beautiful. They're amazing. Incredible superfood. But their seeds have this like very, I've never eaten service berries. When you chew them, they get that like sticky, like mucilaginous coating in your mouth. That's going, if you eat enough, that's going to go through your gut and you can't even trust a fart. <laughs> and so like you're at service berry camp and you're like i don't see any berries over there i want to plant some berries over there um intelligently applied pooping <laughs> so by the what IAP. I oh yeah yes iap iap You know, and this is a, this is the thing. Like, I think that most people that are doing this have a pretty good diet. You know, like if you're on pharmaceutical meds and stuff, that's the thing. That this is complicated. This is a tricky situation, but this is where I like to take this to because it's controversial and it's important. And I have to just call out the elephant in the room. I don't believe in leave no trace. I believe in leave no trace in the context of like 8 billion ecocidal mofos. Yeah. Like if that's all that they know, then yeah, leave no trace, you know? But I think once you get to a certain point in your understanding and your relationship, you can take it so much further. 
You can give back. You can like leave it better. You can leave it more diverse, you know? Like, hell, when you go to berry camp and you wanna come back to berry camp and you want there to be more berries, like that's not leave no trace. You're gonna have to make some disturbance. You're gonna be like getting your hands a little dirty, you know? It's like, it's not leave no trace. It's being a human. It's being an animal, a mammal, a part of an ecosystem. Have you ever seen what bears do in berry patches or to apple trees? You know, have you ever seen what grizzly bears do when they dig roots? They trash it. Like grizzly bears and humans, when they were, when grizzly bears were wiped out of the lower 48, and when indigenous peoples were not allowed to dig their traditional first foods anymore, a lot of these native plants, they were really highly sophisticated perennial food plants that have been co-evolving with grizzly bears and humans for so long. We just think about them as just like pretty wildflowers, but they're not. They're I mean, they are, but they're like very culturally significant foods with a long history, a long context of being planted, gathered, and moved around. Grizzly bears are masters of disturbance. Disturbance, oh, can't forget that one. God damn. Oh. Disturbance is so important because intelligently applied moderate disturbance. When grizzly bears, grizzly bears eat a lot of biscuit roots. They eat a lot of fritillaria lilies. They eat a lot of wild onions. They eat roots. A lot of... And this is, this is sensitive information, you know, but the Paiute, you know, when they talk about OSHA, when they talk about a lot of these roots, they say the bears taught us to eat these roots. That's why we call it bear root. Those little hairs that stick up out of the ground and the OSHA at the base, like those are the bear's claws. There are cosmologies in these plants. There are stories in these places rooted in this. And you're like, man, this is some deep shit. Like, wow, we have to walk in a good way with this. You know, like this is actually like, um, it's not coincidence. It, it goes deep. Roots go deep. So yes, disturbance. There is a way to intelligently apply disturbance that makes it more diverse. Have you ever seen what beavers do to a place? They wreck that shit. But then what happens? It's more diverse. Beaver ponds, more willow, more trout, more everything. You know, beavers are like, I was looking at, when I hiked the Colorado Trail a couple times and I just would, I would just geek out on the beaver ecology. So I was like, man, like, this is more than a moderate disturbance event, you know, like the amount of stuff that they had to do to create this whole wetland ecosystem, like somebody had to die. But then look at all the life that came from that, you know, it's amazing. And we're, we're masters of biomimicry. We can, mim we, we can actually learn from our relatives that are doing this in good ways and mimic that. And I don't think we'll ever, we'll, it's impossible for us to do it as good as beavers. Like you can't do that. Beavers are masters. We do. Yeah, I don't know how well it works, but sometimes if I see a mushroom that is bad and it's got worms in it or whatever, I just like throw it against a tree or sp spread it out to spread the spores. Yeah. But I've heard that there's a fine time when the spores to do that. spread. It might not yeah. even work, but totally. At least I feel like. And I have some friends that they do a lot of morel harvesting up in the inland northwest and the northwest and they'll go out with these huge nets and they'll like do their morel camp and hang all these mesh nets in the trees and dry all their morels in it. So instead of taking their morels out, they're resporing their morels where they're getting them, you know, and you can do this kind of stuff, you know, you're thinking like, oh, how can I like, how can I give back? How can I give the old reach around? How can I like reciprocate this like this life giving? How can I be life giving to a life giving system that's trying to feed me? You know, it's not that hard. Um, but pooping is a really easy way because we all poop every day. 
And this is where the thing with leave no trace, you know, like, like I said, it's intelligently applied and, um, you should probably eat a really healthy diet if you're going to do this, but poop is cool. I love poop. Um, I like to find bear poop. I bear poop is like one of the coolest seasonal indicators about like what's going on. What are the lacks and larders? And by the way, a lack is like what's not abundant in the ecosystem at a given time. And a larder is like what's really abundant. Bear poop will tell you a lot about who's in who's in the house um bear poop up on the grand mesa i'm like finding bear poop I'm like oh my god look at that poop that's a nice poop right there and i go and i'm taking the poop apart you know and i'm just like finding hawthorn seed it's just a pile of seed it's choke cherry pits hawthorn seed and service berry seed a lot of them had germinated and died you know but that's why they make so many berries with so many seeds you know because like when you um, when your germination rates are that low, you know, or like, to, like, cause it gets dry and the stuff, that's why plants make so much seed is because realistically a very small portion of those seeds actually germinate. But when you're intelligently applying these tactics, you know, with your timing and intention, you can really up the germination rate of these plants, you know? So if you find a fresh pile of bear poop with some choke cherries, like, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go plant that somewhere. I'm gonna go bury that right here. So it's not just exposed to like the dry, <laughs> berry, bury. So it's not just exposed to the dry air and then, um, and they can grow. And like, there's bear trails around Durango, right out, right outside of the human awareness that I have found like apple and plum trees growing along. And I'm like, God, God damn, they're just like little fruit bazookas out of their butts. They're just like, <laughs> they're just like eating it and it's coming out and they're planting it. And like, and it's amazing. You know, it's a full system. It's like, it's reciprocal. And it makes sense. I, like there's this thing called a bear nest, you know, and it's when a bear goes up into a tree and they break every fruit laden branch and bend it towards them and eat all the fruit off. And so you'll see these trees with a bunch of branches like broken and bent into the inside of the tree. It's called a bear nest. And it's a good thing. They give back, you know, they're like, they're planting, pooper gating. Um, so yeah, reciprocity is, uh, is really what this is all about. All of us can do it. Um, and timing is to come back around timing Timing is a big thing with like how to do this stuff. Like if like with fire ecology, if you're trying to manage like your, your, your place, right. And you're like, Oh, these plants, like, like these, these, these shrubs are, they're growing right now. And they're going to, they're like encroaching on my like thing over here that I like, you know, um, if you were to cut them back or burn them at one time of the year, they will come back even more robust. But if you were to get them at a specific season, like peak of summer, when so much energy is just being up, 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 it actually really handicaps their ability to bounce back from that. You know, so this like, there's a lot of ecological knowledge in, in timing and in burning and encompassing. You're like, oh, when I do this matters, you know? Cause when I harvest it also matters. So like with biscuit roots, you know, biscuit roots or bread roots. It's a very large over kind of generalized term for culturally significant staple carbohydrate root plants. You know, most of the biscuit roots that we're familiar with though, they're all in the carrot family, you know, the, in the genus Lomatium or Somopterus. 
they grow all over the place out here. They're awesome. I love them. Um, and they're in the same family as OSHA. One of the coolest things about the carrot family is they're so generous with their seed. They make a lot of seed. You know, it's because like those seeds don't always germinate that well. So it's like, and they're evolved to make their way into the little places where around them that they can germinate. Um, that's why Lomatium seeds are like flat. You know, they've like evolved to blow into little cracks in the hard clay soil in these like uh, landscapes where, like a lot of the landscapes where Lomatiums have evolved are like very clay rich soils with a lot of oftentimes basalt and like lava rock, you know. These like certain root plants have an affinity for like, we call them biscuit scabs, you know, like in the scab lands of northeastern Washington where there's like these big floods that deposited all these like layers of different kinds of soil and these massive basalt flows that flow through the land. Talk about, actually, there are more species of Lomatium, like biscuit roots, in eastern Washington than anywhere on this continent, you know. And like one of the most abundant wild gardens on this continent unfortunately is right downwind from the Hanford nuclear testing site in Eastern Washington. And my fan, you know, my old mentor Finn, she was really funny and crazy. And people would be like, Finn, what's like the most abundant hoop? You know, like I want to go dig roots. Like what's the most abundant hoop I can go to? And she'd be like, really? Well, right downwind from the Hanford site, you know, these plants need help. They're contaminated. One of the best seed gathering places ever though. I've been gathering that seed and moving them out of there for years now. And then they're like, what's the second most abundant hoop, <laughs> you know? And she would, she would always just like troll people like that. Cause she knew like, you guys are a bunch of entitled little pricks. Like you don't want, like you just want to go take, you know, that's not what this stuff is about. This is sacred. You know, you have to give back, you know, you got to get in there and do it. So, and the timing that what you do it is important. Like when I'm digging roots, there was this Shoshone word that Finn taught me, um, Ziganahewa. And the rough translation was the time when the getting and the putting, as she put it, is the best. Like you're getting and you're putting at the same time, you know? And that's like right when the seed is like getting to be ripe or like in the late state, early, early stages of their seed, you can go out and start digging yampa. And the places where yampa grows the best is where they get dug the most. You're going out and you're digging yampa and you're creating these massive disturbances. You're like not leaving no trace. You're leaving your holes there. You're leaving the dirt clods and clumps in there. And that is all the best space for those seeds to fall into and have all these little protective little niches to germinate and grow. And like, like those patches of yampa that have been dug forever, like thousands of years in the Klamath Basin in Oregon. Like it's, you're on like these high desert, like flat tables with just sagebrush. And if you didn't know what you're looking at, you're like, oh, I'm in a desert. There's, no, there's nothing here. But if you know what you're looking at, you're like, God damn, I can't take a single step without stepping on yampa and biscuit roots here. Like this is a garden. Like this is food, like real food. It's not like cardboard hydrates food. These are like complex, real carbohydrates that your body is not that good at actually digesting because like we haven't, we don't eat those kind of carbohydrates that often, you know, but they're good. They're superfoods, you know? So in Ziganahewa, you know, you're gathering them when the seed starts to ripen and then the seed really ripens. And just by going out and digging and walking around, you're making these disturbances, your legs are flicking the plants, the seeds fly off, they fall in and you're like leaving these disturbances. 
and you're planting the seeds too and you're gathering seeds to go put in other places you know and um the coolest thing about this is how it affects groundwater because like on a flat landscape of clay when it rains where does water go it just goes like right off but in a flat clay like in a landscape of clay where there's you know when you dig dry clay how it's like clumpy and clotty you know, and you're digging all these holes and there's clumps and clods and crap everywhere. You're making all this shit. And like the water runs across, the water percolates actually down. You're actually creating like water catchment system that actually affects groundwater by doing this. Now think about the fact that this was done for thousands of years. As I was told by the Klamath in the Klamath Basin, they're like, we've been here for like 60,000 years. Like, you archaeologists tell us that we've been here for, like, 10,000 years, but no, we've been here a long time. Like, we have stories about, like, um, megafauna going extinct here, you know? Like, like you don't tell us. <laughs> I'm like, that's sweet, you know? And, and uh, so these are ways that you can do this, you know? And it was really kind of cool being at the Good Medicine Confluence and, like, hearing all these, like, awesome inspiring people talk about just like this and just like i feel like it really echoed a lot of the stuff i've been thinking about which is none of this is original to me i just want you all to know i'm not claiming any of these ideas are mine i'm just except like for except for this one <laughs> except for this one you have all the permission in the world to take it and poop it out and use it but um there's a lot of plants you know that are very culturally significant they have a lot of context they have a lot of story and it's like good to be mindful of that stuff and i also don't think it's bad for us to like um create a conversation around what it looks to harvest them you know like dara seville like somebody asked dara seville he's like a really cool herbalist from albuquerque who wrote like the ecology of herbal medicine about just like how do we like be mindful of like indigenous folks who like wouldn't like us harvesting osha and that talk about it's hard for them to have accessibility to osha and all this stuff and she was like she really just like because i've been having this conversation for a while and i've spent a lot of time on reservations like up in idaho and northern north central washington where um she said the same thing i've been saying but in a different form which is basically you know in my version you talk to like 100 different native folks you're going to get 100 different answers you talk to 100 different native communities you're going to get 100 10,000 different answers because there's all these people in those communities everybody sees it differently you know, and that that's okay. And that that's like a part of the cultural sensitivity that this is, there's no good answer. There's just bigger questions, you know, more complex ways to go into it, listen, um, deepen our understanding of these places and create conversations, create relationships, you know. Here we have a plant, OSHA. It's a big one. If you ever hung out with you folks, they love OSHA. They harvest a lot of OSHA in their ceremonies. And they have really specific cultural protocols about how they do that. And, um, there's a lot of different ideas about how people harvest OSHA, you know? See a lot of people, like, only harvest the leaves. Some people are like, oh, I'll only harvest, like, one root at this time or whatever. Am I in favor of commercialize anything? No. I think that's the problem. When we try to streamline shit, we try to commercialize it, and we just have this, like, capitalistic mind virus that, like, gets into every good thing and shits on it. I hate that. Cause that's a big problem in like the plant world and people are justifyingly upset about it like seriously especially with plants like osha um when you live in the southern rockies you're like i don't see the problem osha is really abundant here it is like we live in the bioregion where osha is like probably one of the most abundant places in the world there's a lot of context of osha in these like 
stories and just like Osha's a powerful person. You know, they really are special. Um, they're one of my favorite spring vegetables. Like this young shoots of Osha when they're coming up and they're succulent and they haven't really gotten hard yet. Like it's one of my favorite times to go up and harvest Osha, you know. I like to make a lot of food with that. It's really good. And also develop this relationship with Osha when I'm like, I'm up there when Osha is just barely sticking out of the ground. And I am up there when they're in their full, every in-between stage of their whole glory to when they're in their seed. And I go back and I get a lot of seed. Osha does not fuck around with their seed. They give a lot. They're like, take it, you know, take it, plant it. It's easy. You don't even have to bend over. Osha get big. You know, if you have a bad back and want to gather seeds, go harvest Osha. Because like Osha seed is very easy. And um, and I've heard different things. I've heard that like people have, like it's really hard for people to cultivate Osha. But I'm like, why cultivate? Like just plant it in the wild because like they're probably difficult to cultivate because they are a plant that grows in really extreme conditions and they have seed dormancy breaking mechanisms that are pretty finicky like wild seeds are finicky because when you don't have a high germination success rate timing is everything so there's hot and cold there's wet and dry there's all of these different dormancy breaking mechanisms in seeds that keep them from germinating at the wrong time i think this is why people are like oh is like really hard to grow but it's like, it's because it has dormancy mechanism. You need to stay, you probably need really cold stratification period where the seed is wet and cold and frozen for a certain amount of time before they can germinate. And, um, everybody does have their different opinion. I don't think there's one answer. Like I haven't harvested OSHA in a bit, but when I do like, I'll go find, the cool thing about the APAC family, which is the carrot family that Osha's in, like biscuit roots, lomatium, like these plants get old. Like they can get up to 100 years old. They get really old plants. And usually when I go, I'll only harvest one plant. Like I'm not trying to sell anything. You know, I, I'm really, when it comes to selling shit, especially Osha, I don't think you should do it. You know, it's like people have different opinions and and I think it depends on the context specifically. Um, but I'll go find one plant that's big. Like there's these one plants like my, and I learned this from my friends up in the Nez Perce reservation. Like, like those Nez Perce folks, they dig OSHA like crazy. They dig so much OSHA for their sweat lodges and for their ceremonies. And like, I learned from them that like you find the one plant, like they like there's, you'll see these one OSHA plants. It looks like a whole bunch of plants, but it's one big, really old plant. Okay. And you like can harvest that one in the middle of a patch. Like you have this ocean of OSHA and you go into the very middle of the patch and you harvest that one big plant. And then all the seed from the other side of the patch are gonna drop into that disturbance that you created. But there's other ways that I'm totally, I think are great. Like the leaves have all the good medicine too. The, you can actually like dig around the roots and just take pieces of like the main roots. I think it really is like up to people to get their hands dirty and like get, re, form a relationship, ask, you know, like get to know these plants, they're people, you know, they're talking, if you're listening, 
And I was talking to Katrina about it. You know, she's like, what's up with OSHA? And I'm like, it's the carrot family. It's not just OSHA, the carrot family. It's like all the best medicines and foods and po most potent poisons, they all come from the carrot family. It's like, it's the family that killed Socrates, right? Was it Socrates? Yeah, you know, so it's a special plant family. I, I it's the, it's, they're like my main, one of my main focuses. It was really cool seeing Dara Seville's class about OSHA, where people are finding out like, in the context of climate change, like plants are moving around. Plants are moving, they're changing, their, 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 their ranges are changing with climate change. OSHA is one of those native plants that is doing really good because of that. According to like the research that Dara Seville was um, laying out that like catastrophic disturbance events like fire, logging, um, even grazing, like changing like the, the, like the whole like forest structure and stuff, like OSHA is coming in and actually like proliferating in the like context of climate change. And that like OSHA is, they're like saying like OSHA is starting to move its range. And OSHA is changing a lot um, and adapting in ways that we didn't expect, you know. But, you know, all of us can go up and get seed and plant it. Why not? Like it's easy. It's really not that hard. If you're up there and you're like hanging out, you know, and you see the seed, like how hard is it to go grab a couple bundles and just like, like make a little ruffle in the ground and just plant them, you know? And like you take care of it and they take care of you. You know, you can, um, I'm never gonna tell people not to, not to do certain things. I'm gonna tell people like, don't be, a, don't be a dick. Like don't be a douche about it, you know? Like be sensitive, you know? Be sensitive the whole, like be sensitive that like this plant has like very serious cultural context behind it. There's stories, there's like, this is real special plant to a lot of people and that you're also a human being that has every right to create a relationship with them too, you know? Like, and um, so yeah, I think that like plant seeds, you know? Like you, if you like plants and you're going out and harvesting plants, go out of your way to get their seeds later or wait till they're in seed and go plant them. Like with milkweed, I've eaten so much milkweed this year Milkweed is a very special plant, like pollinators, monarch butterflies, red femurred milkweed boring beetles. Like there, if you ever go and hang out and start harvesting milkweed for food and you just like get sucked into these like little pollinator worlds and you start to learn about these plants. Harvesting is a, can be a very incredible form of scientific research if you do it with attention and sensitivity and that intention and attention to detail, you know? It's not like we're just going and taking, we're like, really like, who are you? Like, what is like this, this plant evolved within this greater context? Like Sean O'Donohue, he was talking about psilocybin and he was saying like these compounds in these mushrooms and these plants evolved within a greater ecological context, you know, like they didn't just show up for no reason. They're like, they're there for a reason and they came for a reason. It's very multifaceted and complex and all of these plants have these relationships. So when we engage them and ask them how you're doing. You know, it's like when you're trying to date somebody, you don't just go up and be like, hey, what are you doing? You know, you're like, you're like, hey, how you doing, you know? Like you develop a relationship. It is like courting somebody to me, you know? Like the plant, they're like, they're like my babes, you know? Like I love them. I do feel a partnership with them and they take care of me. They take care of 
me and I want to take care of them. And with milkweed, they've been like one of my main foods this spring and summer. I go back every, like when those seed pods are like ready to bust, I'll just go, I go and harvest like one good bag a year. That's all I need. And then this past year, like my partner, she teaches at the NIFSA school. Like I took the, I took her fifth and sixth grade class out and we went to the river and I just made them plant, like I just subverted child labor and made them plant all my milkweed seed for me. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, this saves me so much work. Cause planting seeds is a lot of work. You know, like I have pillow, I had pillowcases of like biscuit root and yampa seed and all these seeds. And like, I was having to send them out to the reservations. I was like, cause I was, I was like, I can't plant all this. I harvested too much. I need help. You know, so I started ringing up some of my friends, like on the Nez Perce reservation and on the Colville reservation. And I'm like, Hey, you want some seed? Okay. I got some seed for you. I'm going to send you some seed, you know? And I like sent it out and they're like, this is a lot. I didn't even send them that much seed, but they're like, this is a lot of seed to plant. Like this is a lot of work. So if you ever have the opportunity to subvert child labor to plant seeds on public land with, you know, species that are like very ecologically beneficial, you should do it because kids love it and they learn a lot and they are, and you're like instilling this in them from an early age. You know, you're actually like to them, it's just fun, you know, but you're like really teaching them some very valuable stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's like one example of this relationship. Milkweed. I love milkweed and I like planting milkweed. It's really easy. And then like, now I get, now I know like what to look out for. I know like, oh, this milkweed here has like all the little monarch butterfly eggs on them. And like, oh, there's look at all the little monarch butterfly caterpillars on this egg. Like I'm like looking on the plant when I'm harvesting to make sure there's like not a bunch of little eggs laid on that part of the plant I'm like gathering from. And I wouldn't have learned that. I didn't even know what a monarch butterfly caterpillar looked like until I started playing with milkweed. And I was like, oh my God, this is like a big deal because monarchs are struggling right now, you know? So, um, let me see, I got everything. Poop, poopergation, air poop. Uh. <laughs> oh, another really cool one up in the Great Lakes is wild rice. Has anybody gathered wild rice or eaten wild rice? When you are gathering wild rice in like the traditional way in a canoe with some friends, not in like one of the big machines. I'm sure even the machines might do this a little bit, but you're planting wild rice all over the place. Cause you're like bringing the, like the big stems down into the canoe and you whack them with a stick and seeds, most of the seeds fly out of the canoe and into the water, but some fly into your canoe and just built into it. Like you're like feeding yourself fat all year and you're planting wild rice, you know? And wild rice is incredible. This is why, you know, that did you all hear about the Enbridge pipeline up in like Minnesota? The reason that's such a big deal, there's a lot of reasons, but the Mississippi headwaters up in like Minnesota, Minnesota, that's like wild rice. Those are wild rice lakes. You know, that's like the heart of Ojibwe culture. Like if you fuck up the wild rice, like you are, that is cultural genocide. And that's the thing. This is like the deeper layer of these foods and these medicines and these plants and the stories and the language, when you eliminate access to them, you are committing cultural genocide. And this was like why these plants brought me to this layer of colonization that I never would have considered or thought about otherwise. I'm like, wow, this shit goes deep. This is deep history right here. You know, the only people that talk about this form of history are like the folks on the reservations that are still tending their plants, that are still harvesting these, that are still practicing their longhouse ceremonies, that like all of these sacred foods they like serve them in the seasonal progression that they harvest them in, in their longhouse ceremonies. 
They're noticing this. They're noticing how they're changing ranges. Like, if you all want to learn a little bit more about this, there's a cool little mini documentary on the internet. Look up uh, Umatilla Tribe First Foods Climate Change. If you type that in, you'll see like a cool little thing where the Umatilla Tribe is just like our first, like, what are we going to do as a culture when our first foods like range leaves our reservation, like leaves our homeland? Like, we're paying attention to this because without these first foods, like, who are we? You know, because we are who we eat and we are the place. Like, people makes culture, makes people, makes culture, makes people, makes culture. It's a feedback loop. Food makes people. Land makes food. Land makes food, makes people, makes culture, makes land. It's like this whole feedback loop that is, it's, it informs itself. It creates itself. It's like, it is, and it's something that, like, we, we, need to be aware of, you know, like what kind of culture are we creating? What kind of foods are we eating? Like what kind of like, uh, what do we have within our sphere of influence? What, what, what ability in our sphere of influence do we have to like interact with this, like na these natural laws, you know, cause this is, these are like laws of nature. There's so much, I'm gonna go around and I wanna just show examples of craft and I'm gonna wrap it up want everybody to like take a good look, smell, taste, touch, whatever, at all these things that all have very long stories, traditions, and life ways behind them. Thanks for listening. If these topics resonate with you, consider joining us this coming summer for one of our programs for all ages focused on ecological literacy, ethnobotany, and building your personal relationship to the ecologies you are a part of. The programs range from a weekend to a full week in length, and you can find more information at layinggroundwork.org. This episode was produced by Jeff Wagner and edited by me, Riley Lopez. Our introduction music is by the Sim Redmond Band. Many special thanks to Gabe Crawford, Rampai Noikau, Gregory Pettis, and the many teachers on plants and seeds who helped bring this knowledge together. You can learn more about our work at layinggroundwork.org.